I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 79 of Talking Golf History, and the first of a new series called A Golf Historian's Scavenger Hunt. In this series, I, along with the occasional help from golf historians, will highlight some of golf's greatest artifacts and historical landmarks from around the world. Some of these items are in plain sight, and they're overlooked by pedestrians every single day, while others sit in the confines of the world's most prestigious golf clubs. On this show, each of these historical items will be ranked by their difficulty to experience. For instance, an item within the clubhouse of Augusta National would rate as extremely difficult, or a 10 out of 10, to view whereas an artifact from a museum or public golf course would be easy to view, and perhaps a 1 out of 10. Each and every episode will give you guidance on how difficult it will be to view that object, artifact, or place, and each episode will share an artifact from the following categories. Extremely difficult to experience, semi-difficult to experience, and easy to experience all while sharing the stories around each item. This episode has been four seasons in the making. I am extremely excited to share with you some of golf's hidden treasures. So without further ado, let's dive into a golf historian's scavenger hunt. Our first ever golf artifact may very well have been lost to golf history in recent years. I'll know for sure in May of 2022. I don't know if this story will serve as the weirdest item we discuss on a golf historian scavenger hunt, but my guess is it will rank right up there. This artifact I'm about to discuss, oddly, has nothing to do with the game of golf, and yet it has a direct connection to Tarzan of the Jungle. Now this story has a few twists and turns, so please bear with me. It all starts off with a famous financier named E.F. Hutton, who during the Roaring Twenties wintered in southern Florida with his second wife, who was the heiress to the General Foods Company, Marjorie Merriweather Post. In 1927, Hutton built the massive estate that he named Marlargo for his wife, which was, up until a couple years ago, nicknamed the Winter White House, and is now the current residence a former President of the United States, Donald Trump. E.F. Hutton had an idea to build a seaside course on the Atlantic Ocean, and in 1928 he purchased the land on what would soon become known as Seminole Golf Club for the sum of $10 an acre. Construction started in 1929, only a few months prior to the stock market crash in October and the beginning of the Great Depression. Despite the looming depression, Work pressed on, and on New Year's Day 1930, Seminole was open for play, 
with a seaside golf course designed by the famed Donald Ross. He had a beautiful clubhouse, a world-renowned locker room with high-vaulted ceilings and a swimming pool. A historical note of interest on opening day, the first person to tee up a ball was not E.F. Hutton, nor was it another Wall Street financier or even a celebrity golfer like Bobby Jones. The first tee shot ever struck at Seminole was played by a 13-year-old girl named Gracie Amory, the daughter of member Charles Amory. Even in its earliest days, Seminole was all about golf. There was a curfew in place at 6 p.m. at the club, presumably to appease the wives of male members so their husbands would be home for dinner. With this laser-like focus on golf, the reality of Seminole was, and for the most part still is, you show up, maybe you get a bite to eat, you play golf, and then you leave. It, like the name states, is a golf club, not a country club. So with this focus on golf and only golf, another legend began to grow. The legend of the Seminole Swimming Pool, otherwise known as one of the most beautiful pools that nobody swims in. Now I must warn you that some of this story may be true and some of it may be legend. But what I can tell you for certain is that nobody swims in Seminole's pool. Nobody hangs out around Seminole's pool. It was and is an amenity that can be seen but never enjoyed. The allure of the pool is only heightened by reportedly the last man to ever swim in it. Tarzan. The actor who played Tarzan was none other than Johnny Weissmuller, who prior to becoming an actor was considered one of the greatest swimmers who ever lived, winning five gold medals between the 1924 and 1928 Olympic Games. The story goes is that Weissmuller, who was a guest of a member, thought nothing of a post-round lap in the pool and jumped in and started swimming some laps in front of his horrified member. He was encouraged to exit the pool And as the story goes, no one, and I mean no one, has swam in Seminole's pool since Tarzan. If it is true that the pool has remained without a swimmer since the days of Tarzan, then I am afraid to say that the story may be complete. I have received word that the Seminole pool that nobody uses has sadly vanished in recent years. It was a wonderful unused amenity that served as a reminder that golf is the only thing that matters at Seminole, or what I like to call the Forbidden Pool of Seminole. The Forbidden Amenity ranks as a 9 out of 10 to experience in person. Our next artifact is actually a collection of 10 items that mark the passage of championships past and the promise of new ones to come. In 1899, a man named Colburn Haskell literally changed the game of golf when he invented the wound ball. Prior to Haskell's use of rubber bands in the interior of the golf ball, golf balls were made of a solid substance called gutta percha, which was imported from Malaysia, heated, and molded into a golf ball. The gutty was a durable ball and its lifespan lasted from roughly 1848 to 1903. One could argue the affordability of the gutty led to the expansion of golf out of Scotland and England and around the world. However, the gutty's roughly 50-year reign came to an end at the hands of Colburn Haskell and his new whelm ball, 
which added 30 to 50 yards of distance off the tee for every golfer. The unintended benefit of this disruptive technology is that it served to kick off what many people call the golden age of golf course architecture in America. From 1903 to 1925, golf courses that were made for the gutty ball were either abandoned or, if possible, renovated to add distance and the new ideas of golf design, as delivered by the likes of Donald Ross, C.B. McDonald, A.W. Tillinghast, and many others. The advent of the gutty hit every existing golf course and rendered it either impotent or at the very least in need of renovation and modernization. This impact was not lost on a father and son from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Playing out of the Allegheny and Pittsburgh Golf Club, HC and WC phones immediately understood the impact of this new technology. And from that understanding, the phones family purchased 232 acres of land for $105,000 from the Caleb Lee estate. The father and son designed, in the truest sense of the phrase, the first modern golf course in America. A fun historical footnote about Oakmont. It was actually formed by combining the memberships of three other private nine-hole golf courses. Oakmont was born of the union of Westmoreland, Highland, and Edgewood Golf Clubs. The benefit of these three nine-hole private clubs combining forces is that it gave Oakmont a built-in membership from day one. That's a little tidbit you might not hear anywhere else. Oakmont was built to handle the technological advances of the Haskell Ball, but that didn't mean HC Phones felt Oakmont was ready to host major championships on day one, or day two, or day three, or even the 5,000th day. In fact, HC repeatedly turned down offers from the USGA to host majors at Oakmont. He felt it wasn't ready. He felt that it wasn't a proper test of golf. So HC Phones, by watching and studying the great players of the day, tinkered by adding bunkers, and he may even brought in his friend Donald Ross for his opinion. Finally, in 1919, Oakmont hosted its first ever major, the 1919 U.S. Amateur. The rest, as they say, is history. Oakmont has weathered every technological advance in its near 120-year-old history, and it stands today as the effective home of the U.S. Open and the host of 19 major championships, including, and often forgotten, the PGA Championships held at Oakmont. As much as Oakmont's course serves as a monument to the genius of the Phones family, Oakmont's clubhouse is a museum not to be overlooked. If you get the opportunity to walk through the clubhouse, take it. And stay tuned because I am positive that this show will address some of the other amazing items that hide within these walls of the famed Oakmont Clubhouse. But today, we focus on 10 items which I believe help narrate the core of the Oakmont story. As you leave the men's locker room and turn left ahead to the doors to the course, you see a beautiful stained glass mosaic of golfers to your left. And to your right, 10 historical artifacts. There behind the glass are the 10 U.S. Open trophies, signifying the nine U.S. Opens that Oakmont has hosted and a blank U.S. Open trophy awaiting the winner of the 2025 championship. For two decades, H.C. Phones turned down the USGA because he didn't believe his course was ready. And today, no club has hosted more U.S. Opens than Oakmont Country Club.
It stands as a monument of the ingenuity, forward thinking, and the genius of the Phones family. The 10 Trophies of Oakmont ranks as a 5 out of 10 to experience in person. Now, some of you are saying, surely, Connor, this is a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. Um, Oakmont's a private club, and you have to be a member or a guest to see these artifacts. That's what you're thinking. Actually, no, that is incorrect. If you plan ahead of time, anyone can get a tour of Oakmont's clubhouse. Oakmont's historical committee schedules historical tours of the clubhouse every month. It's not as easy as a public museum, and it's not open every day for the public viewing. But if you find out which days during the month they give tours, you too can see these 10 artifacts and the amazing collection within the hollowed walls of Oakmont Country Club. Now, on to our third and final artifact for today's show. Did you know that from 1860 to 1891, the first 30 years of the Open Championship, that the Open was played on a rota including a 12-hole golf course, an 18-hole golf course, and a 9-hole golf course? Golf was played in the United States as early as the late 1700s, and yet the United States wouldn't have its first 18-hole golf course until 1892. That is, if you're willing to take Charles Blair McDonald at his word. Or, 1894, if you are to believe the Chicago Tribune's periodicals. Now this is where history gets a little bit cloudy. The main source for the statement of the 1892 is from Charles Blair McDonald's book, Scotland's Gift, Golf, which was published in 1928, or better said, 36 years after the fact. In a much earlier newspaper article, the Chicago Tribune, in May 20th, 1894, describes Chicago Golf Club as a 16-hole golf course. Now, one might assume that this was simply a misprint, but the author then writes that it had eight holes out and eight holes in. Now, it's possible that the author again made a simple mistake. That is entirely possible. But then the author of the article lists the name of all the holes, and they happen to add up to 16. The holes at Chicago Golf Club, according to the Chicago Tribune, were named as follows. First hole, road, hillside, style, schoolhouse, smith, puffer, osage, swamp, fence, field, gap, dead horse, orchard, old home, and finally home hole. Did the author make the same mistake three times and leave out two hole names? Still possible. What we do know for certain is that by August 1894, Chicago Golf Club had 18 holes at Belmont. In August 1894, a match between Lake Forest and Chicago Golf Club lists 18 holes at the Belmont course. Whatever the case, it appears the first 18-hole golf course in the United States was Chicago Golf Club, a club which happens to be one of the most private golf clubs in the United States. So what is this artifact and how can you view it? What if I told you you could play the Chicago Golf Club, the site of the first 18-hole golf course in the country for under $50, that you could walk right up to the clubhouse and ask to play it, and they would let you? You can. We finish our show with an artifact that just happens to be an actual golf course, the site of the first 18-hole golf course in America, Chicago Golf Club. 
In late 1894, Chicago Golf Club was in the process of finalizing a move to its current location in Wheaton, Illinois. And by 1895, the move was complete, with plays starting spring of 1895. Play at the course, they referred to as the Belmont course, began play in 1892 and was open for play for three full seasons, when in 1894 it was determined that the club needed a bigger course. As the periodicals of the day state, the range of holes varied from 100 yards to 400 yards on the Belmont course. When the Chicago Golf Club abandoned the course at Belmont, the membership was not unanimous on the decision. Many members were perfectly content with the grounds, and upon Chicago Golf Club's move to Wheaton, and led by Herbert Tweedy, one of Chicago's most prominent golfing citizens, the club on the grounds of Belmont was renamed the Illinois Golf Club. From there, the golf course changed names over the decades. But today, the course is a municipal golf course owned by the city of Downers Grove. Anyone can show up at the clubhouse, hand over a small fee, and play on the original site of Chicago Golf Club and America's first 18-hole golf course. Here are some additional fun facts about the Chicago Golf Club that you may not read anywhere else. The first Chicago Golf Club was designed and laid out by two men. The first one is well-known, Charles Blair McDonald, but he was helped out by another prominent Chicago citizen, Hobart Chatfield Chatfield Taylor. Second factoid. In 1892, Sir Henry Wood hit the first-ever golf ball at Chicago Golf Club's original course at Belmont, now known as Downers Grove. And finally, C.B. McDonald, before hiring James Fallis as the first head pro of Chicago Golf Club, offered the job to Willie Dunn of Shinnecock Hills, and he even offered him the opportunity to design their new golf course at Wheaton. The opportunity to play the site of America's first 18-hole golf course ranks as a 1 out of 10 in difficulty to experience. Before I end the podcast today, I realized I made a mistake. And though it may seem minor to some, it's major to me. During the second segment, the 10 U.S. Open Trophies of Oakmont, I accidentally gave credit to Oakmont's design to HC phones, when in fact I meant his son WC phones, the 1910 U.S. Amateur winner. It was William Clark Phones Jr., who studied the great golfers of the day to create the monster we now know as Oakmont. I hope you found this new episode educational and entertaining. It's always a bit of a risk coming up with new concepts or series to entertain you. So please share your feedback with me on social media. Just find me at the Society of Golf Historians on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.